Take a Bible, find 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. Almost everything that we're going to talk about tonight, all the verses we're going to reference, almost all of them are in that window, 1 Samuel 18, 19, 20. We're talking about friendship. Uh, friendship is something that is familiar to all of us. Uh, it's something that hopefully you have experienced in a positive sense at some point in your life. And it's something, if we're all honest, that you've probably experienced the negative sides of friendship, whether that's betrayal or frustration or hurt or whatnot. And we, we like the, the topic of friendship. We like the idea of friendship. And that's evident in the fact that we like TV shows and movies about friends. And I'm going to talk about the show Friends in a minute, but... Now I'm not speaking specifically of the show, friends. I'm just talking about any show, TV, movie. We like stories about friendship. And so when you were a kid, here are some examples of uh, friends that you are familiar with. Uh, Bert and Ernie, Pumbaa and Timon, Todd and Copper, Buzz and Woody. We like these stories. Uh, They're not romance stories. They're friendship stories. And we like to see a relationship forged, and we like to see friends come through for each other. I did a little reminiscing from my time as a preteen and a young teenager. Uh, The friends that I grew up watching as a young person was Zach and Screech. And if you think Zach and Slater were better friends than Zach and Screech, you've never watched Saved by the Bell, because Zach and Screech are BFFs, old school. Slater was a latecomer. Uh, DJ and Kimmy, Corey and Sean in Boy Meets World. Uh, There are a lot, as I thought about this, there are a lot of TV shows and movies that center on females who have friends. And so I'll give you a few examples of that. Uh, Lucy and Ethel, Laverne and Shirley, The Golden Girls, Dorothy Rose Blanche and Sophia, Thelma and Louise, many other examples that I can give you. But these are all stories that really center on a, a friendship between two people. Popular sitcoms from the 90s, the two big ones that made just hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. They weren't about workplace situations. They weren't necessarily centered on romantic situations or family situations uh, or anything like that. They were just about friend groups. So you think about Seinfeld and you think about the show uh, Friends. Uh, A great example of friendship uh, would be Lord of the Rings, Sam and Bilbo and Mary and Pippin, these four hobbits that are friends together and they go on a journey together and uh, their friendship sustains them through that. So we like to watch shows. We like to hear stories about friends. It's probably helpful just to stop and say, can we define friendship? How would you actually define friendship? And lucky you, I looked it up on dictionary.com and here's the definition of friendship. The state of being friends. It's very helpful, isn't it? How do you define friendship? The state of being friends. Okay. Uh, Not supposed to use a word in the definition, but that's what they did. And uh, how would you define friendship? I don't know how you would define it, but I took some time. This is not biblical. Okay, I'm not giving you anything biblical at this point. That's coming. But I just started thinking, what is it that makes two people friends? What goes into a good friendship? And you could convince me that I'm leaving something out or I'm, I'm off track here, but I'm going to say three things go into a good friendship, okay? Number one, you've got to have something in common. 
doesn't have to be a big thing. doesn't even have to be an obvious thing. From the world's perspective, you can have two people that look like they have nothing in common, but there has to be some touch point of commonality in a friendship. Secondly, you've got to have something different. It's no fun to just be with yourself all the time unless you're a total narcissist, so you need somebody that's a little bit different than you, and uh, so something in common, something different, and then there's got to be some kind of conflict, I think, for real friendship to grow. Uh, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. When you dial back to the 90s sitcoms of Seinfeld and Friends, okay, stories about friend groups, those friendships, they're just kind of shallow in those stories because the conflict is very trivial. I mean, they're situational comedies. They're taking something very small and trying to pretend like it's something big, but that doesn't really bring people together in a really, really close friendship. Some sort of crisis or some sort of conflict is usually required to bring people close together in, in friendship. And as an example of that, I would submit to you our soldiers, people who served in the military. When those men or women go and they serve in combat, in conflict overseas, and they come back, they don't talk to us about their friends that they served with. They talk about their family that they served with. They talk about their brothers that they served with. They talk about their sisters that they served alongside. You, I think you find something similar among first responders. Policehood talk about, uh, police talk about there being a brotherhood uh, in the police force, or firemen talk about there being a brotherhood among those who, who work in that context. And it's that crisis situation that you're in together that bonds you together in an interesting way. And that's what you have in Jonathan and David. You have a genuine friendship. And I think all of those elements are present. Okay? There are common aspects to these two men. They are both courageous. They are capable. They are warriors. They were both known as men who took the fight to the Philistines. And we're going to talk about that tonight. So they, were, they had something in common. They lived in the same world. They walked in the same circles. They spoke the same language. There were differences. They came from different tribes. They came from different families. Their circumstances growing up were different. Their responsibilities as adults were all different. They weren't just a carbon copy of each other. And there was conflict. In particular, there was one conflict that brought these two men together in a unique way, and the conflict was Saul. Saul's hatred for David, and at times for Jonathan also, brought these two guys together in a unique way. And so when we talk about Jonathan and David, you really can't do it without also talking about Saul. And I'll open with this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, Jonathan's friendship with David brackets Saul's repeated attempts, ranging from irrational to rational, to kill David. The bulk of chapters 18 through 20 are then filled with the details of Saul's six attempts at murdering David. Three times he tried to kill him with his javelin. Twice he lured him into almost certain death with the Philistines by offering his daughters, first Merib and then Michael, as prizes. Once he sent in a death squad. These six failed attempts precipitate a major campaign to rid the country of David. This is important. The friendship with Jonathan, Jonathan bracketed and contained the evil. And you see it, not just in the storyline, but you see it in the way 
this story is actually presented in the text. At the beginning of chapter 18, we start off reading about this friendship between David and Jonathan. Then we read about all these murder attempts of Saul. Then on the back end of it, we read again about the friendship of David and Jonathan. And I think Peterson's exactly right. I think as the Holy Spirit inspired this story to be in the Scripture, it's almost like he's putting brackets around the whole thing. Here's this dark episode in David's life where he's, he's a wanted man. He's got a, a contract on his head, and the most powerful man in Israel wants him dead, and that is bracketed and mitigated and contained by the friendship that he had with Jonathan. So here's the plan. Part of me would love to just read all of chapter 18 out loud and all of chapter 19 out loud and all of chapter 20 out loud, but we're not going to do that. It's 96 verses. It would take you all of about 10, 15 minutes to go home and do it silently. It would take 15, 20 minutes to do it out loud. You can read it on your own. What I want to do is sort of pull out some of the highlights of this friendship between David and Jonathan, and we're going to look at several verses uh, throughout the evening, and so we'll start with this. God was the one who established the friendship of David and Jonathan. This friendship was not a coincidence. It wasn't happenstance. It didn't just happen that these two guys were in the right place at the right time and they sort of hit it off as buddies. God was involved in bringing these two men together as friends. So look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. It says, As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. It says that twice. Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. There's a beautiful description there about the soul of Jonathan being knit to the soul of David. And the vocabulary in the Hebrew literally describes two pieces of cloth brought together, stitched together, so that the two of them also become one. It's not that far from the biblical idea of marriage where two are joined together. The souls of these two men were stitched or literally sewn together. We just read that it was established with a covenant. Jonathan made a covenant with David. At the very beginning of this relationship, he made a promise, an unconditional promise to be loyal to David and to be true to David. And it was marked by selflessness. Twice the text tells you that he loved David. Specifically, it says, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. That's the very heart of Jesus saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jonathan is showing that sort of friendship to David. It's a selfless friendship. Too often today... I think many of our friendships are marked by selfishness rather than selflessness. Many people approach friendship and they approach it thinking, what can I get out of this relationship? And that may be the most crass level of economically, what can I get out of this? Do I stand to benefit from 
this in a business relationship or a contractual relationship or a financial relationship at some point, but even just emotionally and personally. Many people uh, approach friendship and they think, you know, what, what is this doing for me? And that's not how Jonathan approached his relationship with David. He approached it selflessly. He wasn't in it for what he could get out of it. There was no idea of, you know, David, our relationship is bringing some really toxic garbage into my life, which it did. And I need to be rid of this toxic mess, and I need to to be rid of this negativity, and I don't need this kind of drama in my life, and I just need to separate from you. There was a selflessness to this relationship where he loved him as his own soul. And I think the important point to see is God is bringing these two men together. God knew David would need a friend. And the things that he was about to go through was Saul hunting him down, Saul trying to kill him. Peterson says six times, I think eight times, he knew that David would need an ally. And not a fair-weather friend, not somebody who was in it for what he could get out of it, but somebody who was for David no matter what. He knit these souls together. Lakato says it like this, God counters Saul's cruelty with Jonathan's loyalty. Jonathan could have been as jealous as Saul. As Saul's son, he stood to inherit the throne. Jonathan had reason to despise David, but he didn't. He was gracious. That is, he did the opposite of what many expected him to do. Gracious because the hand of the master weaver took his and David's hearts and stitched a seam between them. God brought these two men together in a friendship, and that's important because Saul is involved in this. And so let me say this about Saul. Saul is driven by jealousy and fear, and he tried to kill David eight times. And I know Peterson says six, but I count eight, and I'm going to show them to you. Tries to kill him eight times. Take your Bible. Look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 11. It says, Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. And in the context, the The harmful spirit has come upon Saul. David is playing music. Normally that alleviated the problem for Saul, but in this instance, it didn't. Saul hurls the spear at him, for he thought, I'm going to pin him to the wall. And David evaded him twice, which is a fascinating detail. Not just once, but twice. He chucked the spear, and rather than take off, David thinks, I don't know what David thinks, maybe he thinks, I can get one more verse of the song in and he'll calm down or wait till I get to the chorus and then it really, I don't know, but it happens twice. He gets away. I'm just counting that as one, by the way. Look at verse 17 in chapter 18. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merib. Do you remember when David showed up in the valley of Elah and no one wanted to fight Goliath? You remember the promise that Saul had made to the men? If you go fight and you win, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. David did that, right? Should have already had her in marriage, right? Well, here's what Saul says. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. To which David probably said, I already did that. Now it's time for you to come through on your end of the deal. Saul thought, let not my hand be against him. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. I'll give her to you. Like I said, you just need to go fight and win some more battles. And in his mind, he's thinking, that'll be the end of David. They'll kill him. That's number two. 
Look at verse 20. He ends up giving Merib to someone else. David doesn't get to marry her. Verse 20, Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. And that word snare is often used in the Old Testament to talk about idolatry, to describe idolatry. And so maybe there's some thought in Saul's mind. He knows where Michael is at spiritually, and he's hoping if I get these two together, she'll drag David down. If I can't pin him against the wall, and if the Philistines aren't going to kill him, maybe I can drag him down spiritually in some way, shape, or form. So he says, she'll be a snare for him. And if that doesn't work, the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So he said a second time, yay, I want you to be my son-in-law. This is just what I need you to do. Go kill some Philistines. So again, there's number three. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, to all his servants, that they should kill David. He, just, he basically calls a meeting. He brings Jonathan in and he says, hey, let's kill him. I want him dead. Let's quit messing around. Let's put the spears away while he's playing music. Let's quit sending him out to battle against the Philistines. Let's just do it ourselves. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And Jonathan, down in verse 4, he spoke well of David to Saul. And he said, let not the king sin against his servant David. He's not sinned against you. His deeds have brought good to you. He took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. The Lord worked a great salvation for Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. Why will you sin against innocent blood by killing David? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Jonathan saved him. He told David, you need to go away. You need to be safe. And I'm going to go talk him out of it. And he did in that instance. Look at chapter 19, verse 8. This is the middle of a war. It says, there was war again. David went out and he fought with the Philistines. He struck them with a great blow. They fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. He sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. How remarkable is that? David walks in, the spirit's upon him, and he's got his spear in his hand. And what does David do? I would have run. And David says, give me the lyre. That's my job. I'll play. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Chapter 19, verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. Why? That he might kill him in the morning. He basically sends a hit squad. I didn't get him. Now you go get him. He escapes. Chapter 19, verse 18 is the best. It says, David fled and he escaped. He came to Samuel at Ramah. He told him all that Saul had done, and he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah, and Saul sent messengers to take David. And you know what the messengers are there to do. We're still on this mission to kill this man. And it's the greatest story you've ever read. Saul and these guys go, and they find where David's at, and they track him down, and it looks like they're about to get him. And it's the weirdest story. The Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, He strips all of his clothes off and he prophesies and David gets away. And you say, now that's an interesting way to save David from Saul. Saul shows up ready to kill him and the spirit makes him strip down and he prophesies and David lives one more time. Chapter 20, verse 1, 
David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he came before Jonathan. What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? So apparently Jonathan thinks, Hey, we've worked this out. It's okay. Those were unfortunate incidents, but we've moved past it. And in the story that follows in chapter 20, Jonathan and David learn that is not the case. Eight times. He tries to kill him. Jonathan in the middle of all of it. Interceding. Warning. Protecting. Speaking up for him. Jonathan right there, David's buddy, looking up for him. Saul driven by jealousy and fear. God used Jonathan to protect David and restrain Saul. He's protecting David and he is holding back Saul. And this is the the idea I mentioned earlier where it brackets the whole episode, 18, 19, and 20. It starts off in chapter 18, verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Here's a friendship that's going to protect David in the most dangerous time of his whole life. And then you flip to the end of chapter 20, and we read about this friendship one more time. The closing bracket. Look at verse... 39, the boy knew nothing. Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy, and he said to him, go carry him to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap. He fell on his face to the ground. He bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord. Do you remember that covenant that he made? We have sworn, you and me, In the presence of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. There's your brackets on all of these murder attempts that David survived. Swindoll says it like this. God knew David needed an intimate friend to walk with him through the valley that was ahead of him. Intimate friends are rare in life. Often we have only one, occasionally two, usually not more than three in our lives. There's something about an intimate friend that causes your souls to be knit together. It's what we call a kindred spirit. So I just want to pick up on that quote, and I just want to talk to you about Christian friendship. Right? You can watch TV and sitcoms and movies, and you can see how the world thinks about friendship. Right? Just watch the shows. They'll tell you all you need to know about the worldly form of friendship. The question is, what does it look like for a believer to be a friend? What does it look like for a follower of Christ to be a friend? I think the friendship of Jonathan and David is a model for Christian friendship. It's a model for Christian friendship. And I want to give you one disclaimer here at the front. I think all the things that we're about to talk about in this friendship between Jonathan and David, I think they can be true of any relationship that you have with any other person, believer or unbeliever. You can be this kind of friend that we're going to describe. I also think Swindoll is onto something where he says, in your life, you can quibble with the number, okay? One, two, three, you, maybe you think it's more, I don't know. But you only have a few true kindred spirits and that's okay 
I think sometimes people come to church and they think, you know, we're, we're supposed to be a, a family, and we are. We're supposed to be in it together, and we are. But sometimes there, there may be a little bit too much pressure for everyone to be friends with everyone. That's not realistic, really, is it? I think this friendship between David and Saul is a un- or David and Jonathan is a unique thing. And I think Swindoll is right. I think throughout the course of your life, you'll look back at some point and you'll say, true kindred spirits, and I bet you can count them on one hand. And I bet you can count friends on both hands and multiple hands and, you know, get the calculator out. But true kindred spirits, not quite as many of them. There may be seasons of life where you don't have any. That may be hard. There may be seasons of life where you look around and you say, you know, I used to have somebody like that. I don't know that I have anybody like that in my life right now. My advice to you, if you find yourself in that spot, would be to look at the things that we're about to talk about, and rather than fretting and worrying about finding someone who can do all of those things for you, you go find someone that you can do them for. And you may end up being a kindred spirit with that person, or you may not. And you know what else is possible? It may be that down the road, somebody thinks of you as one of their kindred spirits, and you may say, yeah, I don't know that we were all that close. You kind of bugged me. I really couldn't stand being around you. But that person may look at it at you down the road and say, no, 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 we were a kindred spirit. That person did these things for me. I spoke at a funeral for a lady. She was my boss in high school and college. I was a church custodian at Trinity Baptist in Amarillo, and she was the building superintendent. And uh, she was one of my best friends. She had a son just a couple years younger than me. Uh, She passed away. She had cancer. And her and her husband helped me financially through uh, seminary, through the second second time I went to seminary. And it's a funny thing. At her funeral, everyone there thought that they were her best friend. Everyone. I mean, everyone you talked to was so sad. Oh, Tina, Tina was my best friend. Tina was my best friend. Tina, wasn't she a great friend? She was my best friend. We were so close. We were so tight. Now, listen, I scrubbed a lot of toilets with Tina. And we talked about a lot of different things. And I'll just be honest, we talked about people. We gossiped right there scrubbing toilets. And I know for a fact, she didn't even like a lot of those folks. And there we are scrubbing toilets or changing ceiling tiles or painting the wall or taking the trash out or running to the dump or all the different things we did. And I could tell you, I mean, I could sit at that funeral and say, yeah, she thought you were crazy. Yeah, you really got on her nerves. But everyone there showed up and said, oh, that lady was my best friend. That lady was a kindred spirit with me. She didn't feel that with them necessarily, but they certainly felt it from her because she lived these sorts of things out. And so if you find yourself in the spot where you say, man, I wish I had a kindred spirit. I wish I had a a Jonathan to come alongside me. Pray for that. Ask God to send you that person. That's perfectly fine. But while you're waiting, go out and do these things for other people. And so how is Jonathan and David in this friendship a model for us. Number one, friendship of Jonathan and David was forged in a shared mission. A shared mission. The mission that these guys shared, I'm just going to be blunt about it, was killing Philistines. That was a big deal in their day. 
that was the biggest threat to Israel's security, to Israel's prosperity, and these two guys were Philistine-killing machines. Flip back to the left and look at chapter 14. I really wanted to mention this last week with David and Goliath, but I bit my tongue so we could talk about it tonight. 1 Samuel 14.1 One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jonathan says, hey, let's sneak over, covert ops, but we're not going to tell the king what we're doing. Why? I think Saul, in his fear, in his paranoia, in his lack of faith, would never have let Jonathan go. And my unsubstantiated speculation is that when Goliath was running his mouth, Jonathan would have gone out to fight and Saul wouldn't let him go. I can't give you a verse for that, so don't write that down. Just Jonathan was tough, man. Look at this. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. The people did not know where Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other, and the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. You remember what David called Goliath when he showed up? This uncircumcised Philistine is running his mouth, and I'm tired of listening to it. What does Jonathan say? Hey, let's go. Get your stuff. We're sneaking over. We're not telling Dad. We're going over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. And the armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men. We'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait till we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. Doesn't that sound like David? I'm going to cut your head off because the Lord has given you into my hand today. I'm going to chop your head off with your own sword. And Jonathan says the same thing. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And they hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Meaning us, you and me. We're going up. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet, his armor bearer after him. They fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half furrow's leak of... Uh, length of an acre of land and there was panic in the camp in the field and among the people the garrison and even the raiders trembled the earth quaked and it became a very great panic two on 20 you think he's scared of goliath maybe maybe not but this was a guy whose mission was killing philistines and david was right there with him right god didn't take two men who were totally completely had nothing in common and knit their souls together He took two people who did have something in common, a shared mission, and he knit them together. We've talked about soldiers. When soldiers come back 
from combat, from serving. They have shared in a mission. And there's a closeness that is never broken. Can I just suggest to you, not in the exact same way, but in a similar way, if you take two people and you throw them down in the baby room in the nursery and you leave them there for 50 years and you bring them out on the other end, guess what? They're in it. We had a mission. We served together. You go look at some of our, I'm joking about the nursery, but you go look at some of our children's Sunday school teachers. People who have taught together for years, for decades. They're in it together. There's a closeness. Look, there's a reason why CrossFit is popular. It's not just going to a gym. It's going to a gym and working out with a group of people, friends, and having a mission. We're going to a competition. We're going to a contest. We're in it together. We're all pulling in the same direction. You see the same thing when you go on a mission trip with people. You go overseas or you go to Alaska or you go to Mission Arlington and you go and you spend a week with people and you sleep on the floor and you live in lousy conditions or whatnot and you serve and you do a sports camp or a VBS camp or evangelism or a pastor's conference and you come back and you say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of close with those people. That guy's my friend. That girl's my friend. We've served together. This friendship is forged in a shared mission. Number two. The friendship of Jonathan and David was consistent. It was consistent. And I just want to point out the obvious. We've already read the first five verses in chapter 18. I don't think we need to write them, uh, read them again. But it's in those verses where the friendship is forged. It's, their souls are knit together and the covenant between the two is made. That happens first and then Saul completely loses his marbles. Then Saul becomes completely unhinged and wants to kill David. And you can imagine Jonathan, at some point the thought had to run through his mind, is this friendship worth it or not? Because when I made that promise, I didn't know exactly how hot my dad was going to get about the whole thing. And you have to wonder if David thought it was worth it at some point. Man, I'm on the run from your dad. What in the world am I doing friends with you? But there was a consistency there. They didn't waver in their commitment to each other. Number three, the friendship of Jonathan and David was costly for Jonathan. I just want you to focus on Jonathan for a minute. It was costly for Jonathan. Look at 1 Samuel 20. I can't imagine that there was a sadder moment in Jonathan's life than what we're about to read. 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, this is his dad, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him, not David, Jonathan, to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. 
Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Those are hard words for a son to hear from his father, especially in an honor and shame culture. Just in front of everyone, in front of his peers, he has completely shamed his son. He's mocked him for his lack of ambition. He's called him weak. It was costly. It cost him his own safety to have a spear hurled at his head. I can't imagine that you ever felt safe again after your dad had hurled a spear at your head in the first place. It cost him, I wouldn't say a healthy relationship with his father because I don't know that anyone had a healthy relationship with Saul. But it certainly cost him any sort of normal relationship with Saul, as normal as it could have been. You know, Jonathan could have just cashed his chips in at this point and said, you know what, this is my dad. I don't know that I can, that I can hold this line. And I need, to be, I need my dad in my life. I don't know that anybody would have necessarily blamed him for that. But he, he gave that up and he was loyal to David. He was consistent and it cost him. Number four, the friendship of Jonathan and David was selfless. We've talked about this. These guys were friends not for what they could get out of it. David brought more anger from Saul into his life because he ran around with Jonathan. And Jonathan brought more anger from his father into his life because he ran around with and was loyal to David. These were not guys who cut the toxic people out of their life. In a very real sense, these guys were toxic for each other. Being friends put their lives at risk. And they didn't give in on that. They were consistent even when it cost them and they were selfless. They thought about the other first. I think that's a great challenge for you and me when you think about the people that you're friends with. Are you in a friendship to give something to another person? Or are you in it for what you can get out of it? You may not get anything out of it but drama and heartache and annoyance. But you can still be selfless and give to other people. Next, the friendship of Jonathan and David was marked by vulnerability. I just want to acknowledge a verse we read earlier. 1 Samuel 20, verse 41. It says, David rose from beside the stone heap. He fell on his face to the ground. He bowed three times and they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. You can imagine what people try to do with that verse. Two guys kissing each other. In 2019, you read that and you know exactly where your mind goes. Um, number one, this is a completely different culture than our culture. Uh, number two, you should never, when you approach the Bible, read your own perverseness or the perverseness of your culture into the Bible. The Bible has enough perverseness in it, and it's very honest about it from beginning to end. And it doesn't need you and me to read more of it in to it. Uh, and number three, if you just read in context, there's nothing weird or inappropriate going on here in this relationship because a little bit later in the Bible, we read the exact same Hebrew word that David fell on Absalom and kissed him. That wasn't a romantic thing. That was an affection thing. That was a, a, a relational thing. And it's exactly what's happening with David and Jonathan. So there's nothing romantic about this verse and you don't need to be 
uh, embarrassed about it. You don't need to feel like there's anything to explain away here other than the fact that these two guys, these, look, these are tough dudes, right? This is the guy who stared down Goliath and chopped his head off and the guy who snuck into the Philistine camp and fought two on 20. And there's a level of vulnerability where they can weep together and they can kiss each other and David can bow down to him How many times? Not once, not twice, but three times. David, the anointed king, bows down to Jonathan, the son of a rebellious king. There's a level of vulnerability here where these guys uh, were comfortable being themselves around each other. They weren't afraid that the other would laugh at them or tease them or joke them in their darkest moment, their hardest moment. They just knew they could be very real with each other. And this is where I'd come back to what Swindoll said. You may not have a dozen people in your life that meet that criteria, right? There may not be a whole lot of folks in your life that you say, I can be that open and transparent and vulnerable with them. And at any particular moment, you may not have anybody in your life that's that kind of friend. But at some point, there should be that sort of friend where you can be open and transparent and vulnerable with them. One last thought here. The friendship of Jonathan and David. Uh, actually two more. Friendship of Jonathan and David was rooted in faith in God and his promises. It wasn't just these two guys. The Lord was really at the center of this relationship. And I'd like you to look at 1 Samuel 23. I'm jumping ahead. 1 Samuel 23 verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. So our list is growing here. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. So Jonathan goes to encourage him. This is how he encourages him. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, before Yahweh. David remained at Horish and Jonathan went home. Jonathan knows the promise. And he's not irked by it. He's not chafed by it. He doesn't feel put out by it. He's not bummed that he's second. He says, that's the promise. That's what God said he's going to do. Saul's been rejected. My dad's been rejected. You're going to be the king. And when you're the the king, I'm going to be there right with you. I'll be second. You be first. I'm with you no matter what. Not just because I like you, but because that's God's plan. I want to be part of God's plan. Why would I reject God's plan and be angry with God's plan? That's what he said he's going to do. So it's rooted in faith and it's rooted in the promises of God. One last thought. The friendship of Jonathan and David was stronger than death. We'll get to 2 Samuel in a few weeks. Uh, Saul and Jonathan die and David laments them. We're going to talk about David and the way that he lamented Saul and Jonathan and other situations as well. But this friendship was stronger than death. It didn't end with death. So look, on the one hand, I want you to look at this friendship and I want you to see, here's a a model. Here's a template, right? This is sort of what you would look for in your closest best friend But it's also something that you ought to strive to be to other people, to as many people as possible, to live this way, to be this 
kind of person to all the people that you find yourself interacting with so that when we preach your funeral someday, we all show up and we say, that person was my best friend. And I'll stand up there and I won't say anything. I won't rat you out. I won't say, no, they really didn't like some of you guys. We'll just say, yep, that person was a great friend. That person knew what biblical Christian friendship looked like. So there's certainly something here that we ought to emulate and try to live out. There's also something even more important than that. And here's the the thought that I'll leave you with. Jonathan's love for David is a picture of Christ's love for us. The way that Jonathan makes a commitment to this man, loves this man, even when it costs him, he never wavers in his commitment to David, is a picture of the love that Christ has showed us. And I want you to look, of all places, at the book of Proverbs. We're not going to the New Testament. I want you to look at Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 17 and 18. This portion of the book of Proverbs is brought to you by Solomon, son of David, friend of Jonathan. Solomon learned all the stuff in this book from somebody. And a lot of it, I assume, he learned from his dad, from David. And Solomon wrote these things down for his children. He's heard it from his dad. He wants to pass it down to his children. And I just want you to see a few of the things he says. Proverbs 17, 17, or excuse me, Proverbs 17, yeah, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Again, this is maybe a little bit of sanctified speculation. But where would Solomon have learned something like that? Well, maybe Solomon had a friend that fit that category. Or maybe at some point David sat down with Solomon and said, Let me tell you about my best friend, Jonathan. This was a guy that God put in my life for a day of adversity that was coming. And God knew I would need that man in my life. Look at chapter 18, verse 24. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Somebody closer than a brother. David to Solomon. You need that kind of friend, son. Solomon to his son. You're going to have lots of companions. You still might come to ruin, and what you really need in that moment is someone who's closer than a brother. Jonathan's love for David is a picture of Christ's love for us. Alan Redpath says it like this, The love of Jonathan for David is but a very pale reflection of the love Christ has for me. And the picture is a little bit counterintuitive. Because you study the life of David and you get in this routine of saying, Okay, David is pointing me to Jesus. David's the king. David's the anointed one. David's the, the little M Messiah pointing me forward to Jesus and teaching me about Jesus. And in this episode, it's almost like the roles get reversed. And in this episode, God sort of shows us that David, for all his greatness, he had needs, and one of the things he needed was a friend. He needed a friend who would be closer than a brother. He needed a friend who would be there on the day of adversity. He needed a friend who would intercede for him. He needed a friend who would protect him. He needed a friend who would be willing to lay down his life and risk his life to protect David. 
No greater love is there than one would lay down his life for a friend. Jonathan pictures that, and he shows us this idea, this, this, this hope of a mediator who would come and save us from wrath by risking his own life and by laying his own life down. And in this story, it's not David that pictures that, but it's Jonathan that pictures that in his friendship to David and his commitment to him, even when it's costly. And I hope that you can see the parallel in Jesus and his love for us. He's come to fight for us. He's come to protect us. He's come to lay down his life for us. He's come to be our mediator and to save us from wrath and death. And you see a faint picture, or as Redpath says, a very pale reflection of that in the life and the friendship of Jonathan and David.